break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, Monday, 23rd of August, 2021. Very happy to be back here with you on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the ongoing struggle against Israeli apartheid. We're going to be talking about sales tax holidays and how they aren't quite what they seem. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with some of the obscene costs of mass incarceration. The Prison Policy Initiative has released a new report called Following the Money, which is one of the most comprehensive looks yet at the dollar amount in terms of the cost of mass incarceration. And ultimately, from their estimates, mass incarceration is a $182 billion a year concern, and the costs are borne almost exclusively by the taxpayer. And since the tax code is regressive, borne more on the backs of the working class than anyone else. The benefits, of course, accrue exclusively to the myriad of contractors that benefit from various aspects of mass incarceration and the other predatory entities that work within the broader system, as well as, of course, the architects of the system of mass incarceration who benefit from a system of social control that keeps working and oppress people down. As the report's authors note themselves, in order to avoid various conceptual issues, they actually underestimate the cost a bit by stripping various costs down to those unimpeachably linked to mass incarceration to avoid any nitpicking with their analysis. But it's important to note that because as they themselves note that $182 billion a year, a lot of money in its own right, is really the most conservative estimate one could make about the dollar cost of mass incarceration. Since the vast majority of prisoners in the United States are in public facilities, the largest costs are, of course, the various public agencies and their staff. Public corrections agencies, including jails, prisons, and probation services, are sucking down $80.7 billion a year, $38.4 billion in salaries alone. It's $12.3 billion in healthcare costs, in case you were interested in that. The report estimates that $63.2 billion a year is spent on policing for criminal issues alone, so stripping out various civil issues as it regards policing. They do note, however, that that number is, you know, in and of itself a notable number because there's actually very little direct information on what cops are even doing on a daily basis. For instance, they detail a report from Cincinnati that outlines how cops there spend one-third of their time just driving around and just 17% on any sort of crime-related call. So $63.2 billion a year spent on policing for criminal issues, and a lot of that is money for people just riding around. The report also details that $29 billion a year is being spent on various judicial and legal costs for criminal offenses, as opposed to civil again, and that includes $5.8 billion a year being spent on prosecutors. Now, since, as we outlined earlier, the vast majority of people interfacing with the system of mass incarceration are in public facilities, 
And that means the vast majority of money being made off mass incarceration comes from construction of prisons and various elements of the operations of prisons that are often outsourced along with other profitable carve-outs like the bail industry. The report details that $3.3 billion a year is spent on construction costs linked to mass incarceration. So obviously, prison construction is a very lucrative area of operation. But it is also notable that most prisons especially are constructed using bonds bought by Wall Street companies who then are paid back with interest. You might be interested to know that $1.9 billion a year is going into the pockets of bankers and investors from interest payments for the past construction of facilities tied to mass incarceration. So overall, then, construction and the financing of that construction is a $5.2 billion a year business. There is also $1.7 billion flowing to various utility companies from prisons and jails as well. And another lucrative revenue source is food services. That's a $2.1 billion a year business that's dominated by a handful of companies like Trinity and Aramark that regularly get contracts in the hundreds of millions of dollars to provide substandard food. It's also worth noting that in that $12 billion in healthcare costs, often partially or fully contracted out to companies like Corizon, they are also making huge sums on extremely substandard healthcare. One of the most insidious sets of costs for the incarcerated and their families is the absurdly highly priced phone call services. It's a $1.3 billion a year industry where prisoners or their families are forced to shell out money for calling rates far above anything on the outside. There's also the related issue of commissary. That's the little stores that prisons have to sell things to people on the inside, often critical goods like proper hygiene products at significantly marked up rates. The average minimum wage in U.S. prisons is 93 cents an hour, so usually most of the money for someone's commissary expenses come from their families, who more often than not are people of limited means. Nonetheless, prisons are price gouging them and raking in $1.6 billion a year from commissary charges. The report also notes that as it concerns bail bondsmen, the non-refundable fees you were charged when you engage a bail bondsman amount to $1.4 billion a year. Now, again, that's not the whole industry, but that's just the fees you have to pay that you can't get back Alone, $1.4 billion a year. And while private prisons are a small slice of the overall pie, the report does note that they are making $374 million a year in profits, which certainly isn't nothing by any means. So again, this all goes into a conservative count of $182 billion a year costs for mass incarceration, which is certainly notable because there is no real credible link between mass incarceration and crime prevention at stated goal. There are, however, clear links to the devastating human cost of the system, and as this report shows, clear links to the total misuse of society's resources. It gives us just even more reason to question and challenge the societal assumptions that underpin mass incarceration. Well, as we get into the end of August, many states have just had or are starting to have their yearly sales tax holidays allegedly designed to reduce the burden on families for back-to-school shopping. 17 states will have sales tax holidays in 2021, and states have increasingly started to expand them to other parts of the year as well. They are often touted as a form of relief from the deeply regressive nature of sales taxes overall, where the lower your income, the higher a percentage of your income you pay to the tax. So the wealthier you are, the more you benefit from the sales tax rate. In a new study, the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy notes that, despite sounding good, Sales tax holidays are not that great. They go on to note, quote, a two to three day sales tax holiday for selected items does nothing to reduce taxes for low and moderate income taxpayers during the other 362 days of the year. 
Sales taxes are inherently regressive. In the long run, sales tax holidays leave a regressive tax system unchanged, and the benefits of these holidays for working families are minimal. Sales tax holidays also fall short because they are poorly targeted, cost revenue, and can easily be exploited and create administrative difficulties, end quote. The report also notes that, quote, wealthier taxpayers are often best positioned to benefit from the holidays since they have more flexibility to shift the timing of their purchases to take advantage of the tax break, an option that isn't available to families living paycheck to paycheck. Many low-income taxpayers spend most or all of their income just getting by, which means that they also have less disposable income than wealthier taxpayers to spend when the holiday arrives. One recent study found that households that earned more than $30,000 were likely to shift the timing of their clothing purchases to coincide with the sales tax holiday, but households earning less than $30,000 were not, end quote. And the report also notes that, quote, retailers can also take advantage of the shift in the timing of consumer purchases by increasing their prices or watering down their sales promotions during the tax holiday. The influx of shoppers gives them economic incentive to do so, and the evidence suggests that they often do. One study of retailers' behavior during a sales tax holiday in Florida, for example, found that up to 20% of the price cut consumers thought they were receiving from the state's sales tax holiday was actually reclaimed by retailers, end quote. And more specifically to the pandemic, they note, quote, wealthier taxpayers are also most likely to be able to take advantage of the holidays safely during the COVID-19 pandemic by ordering online, arranging curbside pickup, and having items delivered to their homes. Lower-income households, on the other hand, may lack these conveniences and be forced to choose between keeping their families safe or going into a crowded store during peak hours to take advantage of the discount. And, you know, look, that may sound far-fetched to some people, but just remember what a disaster online learning was for millions of kids without high-speed or reliable internet. So it gives you a sense of, you know, all these things that many people think everyone can access. You really can't. And, of course, as noted at the beginning, a sales tax holiday doesn't really make a huge impact on the regressivity of the sales tax overall. At the end of the day, poor and working-class people are still getting the short end of the stick for most of the year on the sales tax, and that few days holiday does not in any way, shape, or form mitigate the fact that they are paying more than their fair share in terms of the sales tax every other day of the year. And that speaks to a bigger issue, that little tricks like sales tax holidays are just marketing tools to avoid real changes to the tax code that would make it fair in real life. At the bare minimum, you could have a tax rebate to take some of the edge off, so to speak. Maine, for instance, has a sales tax rebate where many working class people can get a couple hundred dollars back to try to mitigate the impact of this very unfair tax. But really more to the point, it's about income taxes. You use a heavy reliance on sales taxes as a form, again, of public relations to make the issue of the tax code more complicated for people in terms of who's paying what. And ultimately, it means that you're able to avoid making income taxes for what wealthy individuals and corporations more progressive. So certainly, by all means, get what you can out of a sales tax holiday, but don't lose sight of the fact that it only exists to make sure that you do, in fact, lose sight of the fact that the tax system is deeply unfair. Over the weekend, Israeli apartheid forces wounded at least 41 Palestinians, including a 13-year-old, when they broke up protests in the Gaza Strip with live ammunition firing. As Al Jazeera relates, quote, On Saturday, hundreds of Palestinians protested at the fence separating Gaza and Israel to mark the 52nd anniversary of the burning of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in occupied East Jerusalem and to draw attention to the blockade Israel has imposed on the Gaza Strip since 2007 when Hamas took control of the Strip, end quote. 
At one point, one Palestinian decided that he was going to defend the protest that, again, was just being raked with live fire. An Israeli soldier ended up shot, and in response, Israel decided to bomb the Gaza Strip. Tensions are high today as more protests have been planned in Egypt, working hand-in-glove with apartheid forces, has decided to close the Rafah crossing, the only crossing into the Gaza Strip not controlled by Israel. This is especially egregious because it comes not long after this summer's assault on the Gaza Strip that destroyed massive amounts of infrastructure, including critical infrastructure like hospitals and medical facilities. Three months on from the conflict, Gaza is facing a desperate economic situation, or rather an exacerbation of the already desperate economic situation caused by the blockade on Gaza. And because of this continuing siege, it has meant the ability to reconstruct the damage is essentially impossible, which, of course, is causing all sorts of problems, including the economic recession, but hence the recent protest to resist this state of affairs. Using live ammunition to break up protests in Gaza is reminiscent of the 2018 through 2019 March of Great Return, where every week thousands and thousands of Palestinians were protesting peacefully and where 300 Palestinians were killed while doing these nonviolent protests. It's a keen reminder of the fact that in Palestine, it doesn't matter how you resist, but that any attempt to stop Israel's apartheid regime will not be tolerated, but suppressed with brutal force by the apartheid authorities and given total moral backing from their U.S. allies. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Oh.